0: Good morning. Um, It's great to see you all again. Uh, If you're visiting, uh, welcome. We're blessed to have you with us. My name is Joshua, and I'll be bringing you the word today. Uh, Last week, Norman started us off on a new series in the book of Esther. And we saw different aspects of the book that he introduced to us. For example, God is not mentioned. Um, So that's a little strange. There's a lot of irony and humor in the way the story is told. And there are coincidences that seem to show God working in the background. And and we're going to see some of these aspects come up in different ways every week. Well, in chapter 1, we saw the -the over-the-top extravagance um, of King Ahasuerus. Uh, He throws this six-month-long party to display his glory and he tries to show off his wife Vashti to people. And of course Vashti says, no. And as Norman pointed out, in that refusal, we see the spirit of Christ in her. Like Christ, she's able to stand up against oppressive powers. And Jesus continues to lead us in that way of rest as we stay near to him. Today we're getting a little further into the story And we're continuing to see what it means to be faithful in hard times through meekness and wisdom. That's the overall idea of the series. Let me read the text for us. Esther chapter 2, 1 through 20. Uh, Hear the word of God. After these things, when the anger of of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taking, taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear God, your word is precious. Teach us how to receive it and live in it even in times when life seems to pull us away from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So my wife, Amy, is very drawn to a particular interior design aesthetic called Japandi. And so I looked into the history of it this past week, and I found that it's based on a combination of two philosophical traditions, one from Japan and the other from Scandinavia. The Japanese side has to do with a Buddhist concept called wabi-sabi, which has different definitions. But basically it means beauty is simple and flawed. Uh, It encourages people to be at peace with the fact that nothing's perfect, nothing's finished, and nothing lasts. So a wabi-sabi mood is supposed to invoke a calmness, but also a kind of mellow longing. That's the Zen teaching the scandinavian side comes from a danish concept called hygge which means something that hugs your soul makes you feel cozy and safe inside uh, so the combination Japandi is all about a serene minimal environment being at peace with flaws but also feeling cozy now this is my first time using a slide during a sermon but just to show you a visual of how this shows up in uh, interior design. You can see that, right? Um, subdued colors, you know, natural vibe, all, all that. I actually wrote this sermon at a Japandi cafe in, in Forest Hills. Uh, well, like I said, uh, Amy's into this kind of stuff. Whether or not we're able to afford it is another question. Um, But you can see why this is such a trend, right? Uh, It's speaking to very human desires. Uh, Even on a surface level, uh, the desire to be at peace in a flawed world, Uh, the desire to find simplicity away from all the noise, and the desire to feel safe, all about spiritual wholeness. Today's sermon is entitled, The Search for Beauty, and we're gonna see that in the text. But what I hope we can take home today is that God's beauty shows up in our life, not in superficial ways, but when we find Christ together in messy situations. Uh, That's true wholeness, when we find Christ to lead us in messy situations. Uh, Three points to draw that out. Um, The power of beauty, the family of beauty, and the simplicity of beauty. First, the power of beauty. So at this point in the story, the king has banished Vashti for disrespecting him. But here in verse 1, you see that the king, after his anger settles down, starts missing Vashti. Uh, The English says he remembers her, uh, but the emotion's more like he's regretting that she's gone, and he feels this emptiness, a kind of loneliness. And right away, the king's men order the officials to organize a beauty pageant uh, for the king. Uh, to find a replacement for Vashti. Uh, Two things we have to notice here. Uh, First, the king takes no time to think about what he did to Vashti. Uh, He doesn't reflect on his actions. There's no self-awareness or pause. He just goes straight to regretting and then finding another woman. It's all very fast. Second, if you look at verse one, it says he remembered what had been decreed against her. Uh, That's in the passive voice. See, it doesn't say he remembered what he decreed against her. It says what had been decreed against her. So it's almost like even he didn't have control over what was happening. Uh, He was so lost in his extravagance, recklessness, and glory that he wasn't focused fully on his decisions. Let me pause there. Family of God, how often do you find yourself needing to fill the empty spaces in your life as fast as possible. Uh, How often do you feel the anxiety to move from one attraction to the next? Uh, Different personalities do it in different ways. Some people are constantly looking for the next adventure or obsession. Uh, One moment they might be into a certain business idea, and then suddenly they're exploring the arts. Uh, Other people look for ways to soothe the mind. Uh, One moment they might be into a video game, the next day, look for a mindless hobby. And these are all awesome in general. There's nothing wrong with these choices. But the question is, do you find yourself needing to fill empty spaces as fast as possible sometimes? Um, see, the activities we enjoy are enriching and life-giving for us. But if we don't keep an eye, they might become spiritual coping mechanisms, what my students call copium that distracts us from our deeper needs. Sometimes instead of us being aware of how our activities can heal and grow us, we actually get lost in them and they take over us. Uh, uh, right now it might be a happy marriage, uh, but once that gets boring, maybe a house somewhere uh, or maybe a promotion or something like that. These these are all powerful gifts from God, but as Space fillers in our hearts, they get stale pretty quickly. Um, and this could happen in smaller ways, too. For example, for me, uh, as soon as I wake up in the morning, I have to get a podcast going. Something playing in the background, even if I'm not listening, just consuming. Uh, sometimes it gets so bad that, that when, I wa- when I'm watching a video on my computer and a 15-second ad pops up, uh, during that 15 seconds, I pull out my phone to look at some, something else. Constant stimulation, space filling. So whether on a large or a small scale, I'm needing that fix of Japandi, uh, that peace, comfort and fulfillment, but I don't stop to think about what I'm really longing for. That's the power of beauty over me, that promise of wholeness. And maybe that's you too. Uh, Maybe we're just getting our fix of wholeness from different places to survive the day to day. Family of God, I know this is a difficult time for many of us. So often we just come home exhausted every day, uh, looking for something to relax us, and and that's real. That's a real thing. But I don't want to just leave us there. I still want to encourage us to pause and examine our daily patterns when we can because it's related to our healing. Uh, Am I allowing the waves and habits of my life to take over me? Or am I willing to reclaim myself under God? Psalm 42, what does it say? Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? The psalmist is talking to himself. He's trying to calm himself down. What would it look like for us to slow down and reflect? Um, now, of course, we don't always have the time to do that every day. Um, but even if it's just once a week, once a month or a quarter, being able to unplug, step back, and talk to our souls before God, That's reclaiming the power of beauty and not letting uh, the the things take over us. Uh, The second point is the family of beauty. So after the king sends out people to look for a queen, the narrator introduces a new character, Mordecai. And he notes that Mordecai is a Jew from the line of Benjamin, who was among the people carried away with King Jeconiah. Uh, So, before the Persians took over Babylon, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar took a Jewish king named Jeconiah captive. And uh, he brought along a whole community of Jewish people. And here the is showing us that that old community of God's people is still here surviving in this foreign empire. Uh, these are conquered and vulnerable Jewish people living in the midst, still being preserved by God. Um, And then it says Mordecai was raising up a young woman named Esther. She had no father or mother, so he took her in as his own. And now he takes responsibility for her well-being and growth. One of the most moving weddings I attended was of a friend from seminary. Now this guy was an interesting character, very smart, uh, but also had a kind of rude sense of humor. And because he was so sarcastic, you couldn't really tell if he was sincere or not at times. A lot of cursing, smoking, and joking around. We loved him, we loved hanging out with him, but he was not the gentlest of people. Um, Well his fiance basically suffered an accident that caused something like a stroke, and she developed a disorder that impaired her speech. So during school, we always knew that he was tending to her, even though we didn't really see them together much. And with us, he was just the same old dude being being weird. Well, on the day of the wedding, I saw the two of them hold hands and start reciting the traditional vows. And he was straight-faced, as usual. But in the middle of reciting his portion, suddenly his voice started shaking, and he locked eyes with his soon-to-be wife, tears rolling down his face, and he continued quietly, in sickness and in health. And the whole place was in tears, hearing him say that and knowing their history. Um, that was beautiful, my students would say that was wholesome, uh, why? See in that moment we saw a glimpse of something between two people, two people that was not transactional. Uh, it was meaningful because in those five words you could see the sacrifice, compassion and devotion they had for each other. There's something about our life that's not complete uh, until we allow ourselves to be part of somebody else's life and somebody be, to be a part of ours, whether it's in friendships, church, community, or family. Uh, see, in this passage, what does God do? In an environment filled with brokenness in the empire, he preserves relationships. Uh, right, he doesn't just in, uh, introduce Mordecai. He introduces Mordecai as a descendant of the Benjaminites, and as somebody bringing up the next generation in his niece, Esther. That's the contrast against the self-centered glory of the king. This is Mordecai locating himself in a community. See, the first point was taking that back the power of beauty and, and wholeness in our life by slowing down and assessing where we are. But then we reach out. And we allow people to reach out to us in hard times. Uh, This past week in our CG, Jenny posed the question to our group what is the gospel? And I was expecting some uh, theological answers, but one by one, our members started sharing uh, how the gospel means change because somebody showed grace to them, Uh, how it means healing because somebody embraced them during a painful time. how it means guidance because somebody became a role model for them. Um, if you know our CG, we're we're a random eclectic group of people from various backgrounds. But you could see how God weaved and orchestrated different interactions in our histories so that all of us could be there together. Uh, my professor always starts his lectures off this way: I am who I am because somebody loved me, somebody paid attention to me. Uh, The gospel transforms us through people in unexpected places, and that's meaningful. That's lasting and beautiful, especially living in this city. C.S. Lewis writes, Every soul seeing God in her own way communicates that unique vision to the rest of the community her vision of God enriching everyone else. That's why the seraphim in Isaiah 6 are proclaiming holy, holy, holy to one another because it enriches each other's view of God. So we pause and reclaim the power of beauty in our lives and then we look for the family of beauty, people around us to give and receive. Lastly, the simplicity of beauty. Well, finally, Esther has to enter this beauty pageant at the king's palace. She joins the other young uh, young women under Haggai, uh, the royal eunuch. And because she wins the favor of the palace, she advances to the most privileged area. Here's where the story gets ridiculous. Because the beautifying period for these women, uh, when they receive cosmetics, fragrances, and spa treatments, and things like that, was a whole year. Uh, six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments. It's like living in Sephora for a year. Uh, And then one by one, they they went into the king's chambers in the evenings. They could take anything they wanted into the palace. If the king liked her, she would be called back. Well, Esther goes in. She doesn't take much with her. Um, She keeps it simple and takes only what Haggai tells her to take. And of course, the king loves her and makes her queen. Now one of the difficult parts of this section is that Mordecai commands her, most likely because of safety, not to make her Jewish identity known. Uh, And the reason this is difficult is that it probably means she didn't keep the Torah, the Jewish law in her lifestyle while she was in the palace. For example, uh, Jewish people had a strict dietary restriction she probably couldn't follow those uh, or else she would be found out. Uh, And the most glaring transgression is that she sleeps with and marries a Gentile. Uh, So the early Jewish hearers of this story probably noticed these moral contradictions in her life. Uh, But look what it says in verse 18. The king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. Uh, Pastor Jeff Jupe, pointed out to me this past week that there's a significance to feasts in the book of esther Um, as we move forward we're going to see that god's purposes through esther happen and by some ways through feasts Uh, and that's why it's so interesting when it says here it was esther's feast because although the circumstances are messy for her in this chapter it foreshadows that the story of esther is not over Uh, family of god how often Do we find ourselves feeling powerless or compromised as we navigate our work and life situations? Uh, Maybe it feels complicated because we have to work in systems that are not necessarily loving to people uh, or with relationships that are dysfunctional. Uh, Somebody came up to me and said, Josh, I don't know if I should be working at this company uh, or, or if I should be associated with this person, and I understand that. In order for us to survive and support ourselves and our family, sometimes it feels like we have to be part of things or people that we don't necessarily agree with all the time. But I want to encourage you today, wherever you find yourself in your work or life situations, you are not more or less Christian because of the way you respond to messy circumstances uh, or structures. You're Christian because Jesus is holding on to you faithfully. Uh, Even if you feel like you've messed up as a parent or you fell into a particular sin again Or you work for a company that's corrupt You're not less Christian in the eyes of God because if you've put your trust in him He's holding on to you and his heart is still for you. You're a child of God no matter what decisions You might decide to make Um, But in these moments when you're faced with a dilemma or needing wisdom, you're still gonna have to make choices and sometimes If we look look at the book of Esther, finding beauty in the messiness is just keeping it childlike and simple. Esther didn't go all extravagant like the other women. She just worked with her her superior uh, the best she could, and she followed the instruction of her uncle Mordecai to be loyal to her people. When you're faced with difficulty, you ask yourself, what does it mean to honor God in this moment by loving myself and loving the people around me? If any decision I make here requires me to disrespect myself, uh, I might have to think twice about that. If any decision requires me to disrespect somebody else's mind and body, I might have to think twice about that. And sometimes these are the only simple guidelines we have to help us follow Christ, even though the situation's not always going to be that simple. We do our best to follow and we trust that God can still work through our imperfections and circumstances. God working through our powerless obedience is bringing beauty out of the dirt. Um, This is one of my favorite quotes from one of Tim Keller's sermons. It's a little long, but I want to read it for you because it illustrates uh, Jesus being so willing to work with whatever we have. Listen to this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says... My soul is sorrowful, even unto death. I don't know what to do. I need somebody to keep awake with me for one hour, please. But his disciples don't. They fall asleep. And so he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is facing the wrath of the Father with blood coming from his capillaries because of that much, that much tremendous strain. And yet he comes out looking for something to say kindly about the disciples who are falling asleep on him. He says, I know you mean well. Don't you see there a picture of the way he's treated you over the years? Anyone who's been a Christian for a number of years, you know he's been like this with you. Look at the disaster area in your life. What does he do? I know you mean well. 98% of your heart is full of seething, bad motives, and 2% is wanting to obey God. And what does Jesus do when he meets you? He says, I love that 2%. Let's see if we can make it 3. Look what it says in verse 11. Every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Uh, Mordecai's anxious and concerned. Uh, knowing what kind of environment his niece is in. I wouldn't be surprised if he was pacing back and forth at the door. That's the kind of image we could imagine, somebody's heart aching for the well-being of his precious child. Does that remind you of somebody? When Christ sees you doing your best to try to navigate this life, he's not looking down at you with judgment or condemnation. No, his heart is reaching out to you day by day, praying for you, eager to walk with you because he knows what you're up against. So family of God, the way we bring about beauty is just simple obedience to him and loving ourselves and others in word and prayer. And he will work through that. He will fulfill that. Look what it says in Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy, holy and without blemish. That's the true wholeness we're longing for, even if life looks kind of ugly right now. So we pause to evaluate ourselves when we can, reach out to people as they reach out to us and obey together in simple ways the best we can, and his purposes will be grand um, in our lives. That's what, la- that's what is lasting in God's kingdom. Um, As we consider this table, um, something I always notice here is that uh, these objects are very uh, unremarkable, thank you. These objects are very unremarkable, very mundane things but they symbolize our salvation and our fellowship with Jesus, and he wants us to hold on to that. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and as often as you drink it, Remember me.